This is Joseph Gervasi. I'm here with Tim Dunn. Uh, we are conducting this interview at Cinder Garden here in beautiful West Philadelphia. Uh, today is March 2nd, 2013, and this is part of the Loud Fest Philly series. Hello, Tim. Hello there, Joseph. Hi. Uh, so, I guess we'll go into a little bit of your early life. Um, go back to Tim's a baby. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Number five of ten children. Uh, Grew wow. up in Darby, a trolley ride from West Philly. Very nice. Oh, so yeah. you're, you're close then. Yeah. Um, okay. So what kind of, uh, what was Darby like, you know, in, what, what, actually I should start, what year were you born? 1959. Okay. And what was Darby like? Darby at? was rigidly segregated. Um, it was interesting. I grew up on the border of Collingdale and Darby. Collingdale was an all-white town. Um, Darby had a black section, which was called Chicken Hill. And in my mind as a child, I always thought, why do they call it Chicken Hill? Do they call it Chicken Hill because white people are chicken to go there? Mm. Or because black people like fried chicken? <laughs> you know, it's just... And there were was two, there an answer to this question? Uh, no, well, there wasn't. But uh, two black men walked past my house every day to, uh, they were the grave diggers. They worked in Collingdale, which was on the other side of the street, yet there was an all-black cemetery in a town where no living black people were allowed to live. Yeah, so it was a very interesting phenomenon. And every Memorial Day, there'd be an amazing parade of all-black war veterans and the drum and drill team, which was also all-black. And the parade was all-black, and the audience was all-white. And they walked through our neighborhood. It was very dramatic every Memorial Day. Wow. Never forget it. Fantastic. <laughs> Grew up in the 60s. It was dramatic. <laughs> uh, so, uh, you want to tell me a little bit about your, your growing up, uh, like uh, where you went to school or what? what yeah, you, I went what to Catholic kind of school like for 12 years. Uh, I have three brothers. I'm basically the only of my, one of my four brothers who graduated from the Catholic school. They all dropped out. It was awful for them. Um, I was a good runner, and the only reason I made it through four years of Catholic school is because the cross-country team was like the city champs one year, and county champs of Delaware County all four years, and that was what really got me through school, running. Right. Yeah. So prior to, to punk coming along yeah. in 76, 77, did yeah. you have an active interest in, in music? Uh, I basically really, like, when I was in high school, I loved Led Zeppelin, I kind of worshipped them, and... I, I kind of liked, you know, a little bit of Joni Mitchell and stuff. I kind of dabbled in folk stuff and Steely Dan, but like Led Zeppelin was where I was at with me. Very heavy music was what I worshipped. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I moved away. I lived in Denver for a couple of years, and um, I went to University of Denver in Colorado just for one year. I went back for my second year realizing I hadn't applied for any classes and hadn't registered for any financial aid, and I realized, like, fuck this, I don't want to go to school. So I worked in a record store and started listening to um, a lot of Perubu and The Clash and Richard Hell and The Voidoids, and those were the bands that were formed for me in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And uh, Denver had a small punk scene that was kind of cowpunk, and... Uh, people who were doing like Pink Floyd cover bands and stuff. It was pretty interesting, but um, we were like always hoping that some American band would tour through. And uh, I mean, some traveling punk band from England, maybe like, and there were very few, but like, you know, Graham Parker and the rumor would come through and, you know, some other band would come through and we're like, where are these bands? And then I would read in like Crawl Daddy magazine that like Elvis Costello was playing at this place called the Hot Club and Devo played there and like the police played there. And I was like, you know, I dropped out of school in 79. I mean, I, dropped, I left Denver in 79 to play for a couple of years. I, I bummed around for a year and a half and worked in movie theaters and record stores. And as soon as I got off the plane, I said to my folks, where's the hot club? And they're like, the what? 
It's like the hot club. And I picked up the Daily News. I said, oh, here it is. It's at 21st and stuff. Oh, my God. Richard Hell and the Voidoids are playing tonight. I was so excited. I was back to Philadelphia. It was the day I got back. And they're like, you're, you're not going to 21st and South. I said, oh, yes, I am. <laughs> so I started going there three times a week. And it was just crazy, crazy scene. And So when this thing ex exploded, or when it yeah. came about, did you yeah. feel that like this was the thing for you? Oh, yeah. I was really excited by it. I was, I was excited about seeing these crazy touring bands. And the scene was pretty diverse. I mean, you got to see bands like Ultravox or Tuxedo Moon, uh, local bands. I got to see you know, a ska band called Madness, you know, who a lot of people know. I think I've heard of this band Yeah, before. yeah. And, uh, and it was interesting local bands, and I got to see some of them, but it was just like, wow, I got to see the Dead Boys three times in one week. I miss Gang of Four at the Hot Club, and I miss Magazine, but like, you know, I got to see some really interesting, you know, post-punk bands, and but then I was kind of sick of The Clash, because they were the only band that mattered, and I kind of detested that whole sediment, and you know, I went to see them. The first time I saw them in 79 was at the Walnut Street Theater, and they were just friggin' amazing. It was electric, and, you know, that's where I met a lot of people I ended up living with, because, like, people who were really passionate about punk, you know, some of them were Penn students, and I kind of drifted to West Philly because there were punks who went to Penn, and I would meet them at Penn's bookstore. That's where I worked, and we ended up living in houses and starting our own scene, really. So you so this is late 70s? This is, no, this is 1980, by that time. 8081. All right, so you feel that at this point there's kind of a scene collapse. Oh, uh, it was starting, yeah. There was definitely something starting, mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, bands like uh, the Stickmen in Philly were pretty big, and I mean, big in a sense that they played a lot of parties in Center City, but we could lure them to West Philly, promise them a little bit of money and beer, and we put up flyers in the neighborhood, and we basically told our neighbors about them, the parties, because we didn't want to you know, the cops would come, and it was pretty interesting, because, like, all these old jazz heads would come and play, and there'd be music until, like, three in the morning sometimes. It was pretty interesting, you So know? it seems like a lot of, you know, odd characters are kind of intermixed yeah, with each other. Yeah. They're not kind of, you know, broken into little... No, it was interesting. Segments. I mean, there was a lot of interplay between West Philly people and Center City at that time. There were a couple alternative spaces. There was a place on 12th Street near Rittenhouse, or near um, Reading Terminal called The Wet Spot, that had people like Eugene Chadbourne play, and, you know, people from the Stickman played there a lot. You know, there was, like, an art band segment in Philly, and there was a punk band segment. But there was an interesting flow and exchange between them. And the Hot Club was a good place until it closed. But then some other clubs opened, like the Love Club and Omnis. Omnis had amazing shows. Now, where was that located? Uh, that was at Ninth and Walnut. And I got to see bands like The Fall there. The Dead Kennedys played there. Bauhaus played there. I mean, it was just crazy, crazy little club that ended up burning down a lot of the clubs burned down you know if you look at that get off our backs compilation of like philly punk you know it's just like if you look at the liners it's just like club closed club burned down it was just like this you know running <laughs> running commentary on the scene there were a lot of you know people were running out of places to do shows but then there was always something happening in west philly if it was a, it wasn't a frat party it was a basement show and then you know People from KDU started doing shows, sometimes in basements, sometimes at KDU. It was just like, it evolved slowly. And I, I think like, Bay 82, there was just like a pretty established hardcore scene. And there was definitely like some interesting stuff going on. Now, did you feel that there was a, a shift in, uh, you know, punk to a point and then there is this hardcore strain of punk? Yeah. Did you, so you felt that kind of like a scene I definitely or? saw, yeah, I definitely saw more of it. And, like, around 84, 85, like, I met Chuck, and Chuck basically, like, 
you know, punk's got such a bad name, we need to do something positive. So he came up with the whole idea for Rock Against Hunger. Yeah, you should and, explain that. Yeah, Rock Against Hunger was this idea that, like, well, punks should be seen in a more positive light. Like, we can actually, like, help people. We can collect food for hungry and homeless people. And, you know, around that time there was, like, Live Aid and all this stuff, you know, big concerts for folks in Ethiopia and stuff. And Chuck came up with this idea, and he basically found this space on... Uh, 40th Street and asked me if I wanted to help him set it up and it was amazing. We just worked stakes. Yeah, we worked really well together. We just kind of pushed the table. There was a bunch of tables. It was almost like everything we needed to clean up the place was there. It was just all these old tables like, let's put them all together and put plywood on top. It's just kind of like a Mm no-brainer and like the stage was pretty much set and you know, it was, we had a whole lot of shitload of trash but um, it was an interesting concept because it's basically like five bucks to get in or like $4 and a bag of beans or, you know, Mm -hmm. something non-perishable. And it was interesting because I still remember the very first show because, like, we got so much food. And um, I was like, what are we going to do with this stuff? He says, we'll just get a cab and we'll bring it to a shelter at, like, 20th and Spring Garden. And I still remember the shelter was called the Center for Dignity and uh, Fairness for the Homeless. And he hired a cab to go and bring the food down there. Within, like, I think it was the second or third show... I saw an article in the newspaper where Chuck found the ad for Abe's in the first place, and it was about a soup kitchen starting at Penn um, at St. Mary's Church. And um, the article was about how a homeless person was found frozen to death on Penn's campus, and the church people got together from the different parishes and churches, congregations got together and said, hey, uh, we're going to we're going to do something about this. We're definitely going to have hospitality meals. So they started at St. Mary's, and I was like, we should just bring the food down there now. I can borrow one of those canvas carts, and all we got to do is bring it like three blocks down the street. Mm-hmm. And it worked great. And we went there on a Thursday night, which was the, the night of the meal, and they made such a fuss over us, the two of us. They yeah. took our picture with all this food that we collected. So like we were the front-page story the next week. It was pretty amusing. And then I started kind of going there and helping out and just, you know sweeping the floor or bringing them more food or hanging out with these homeless folks and talking to them. And we're like, we should do more for this. You know, like we should definitely like, we should do fundraisers for this. And Chuck wanted to um, bring in bigger bands. So he, he also, um, he arranged for like a couple shows at Penn and eventually we got CEC to do shows. And um, we did a fundraiser for, um, for Oxfam and, and it's great. Cause that's like a whole, huge um that's a big step from just like doing a little fundraiser for the local soup kitchen and uh Mm -hmm. it was pretty great and um yeah and the soup kitchen was cool a lot of the people who went to the shows were either squatters or very poor so there was like there were started to be punks showing up at the soup kitchen because they heard it was a place where they could go and get free food and i would hang out and get free food and you know eventually i totally burn out on doing shows and uh and got really interested in just helping build this homeless soup kitchen program. And so was the was this the, the start of you your political conscious or was a did little you bit? Have, yeah, uh, I think I, I mean I ended up living in an apartment above Abe's, but like I got so tired of doing shows, and but I wasn't working, and I was like, how am I going to pay my fucking rent? And I just kind of like, I remember. I had squatted in uh, at 47 in Baltimore. I squatted the attic of a building that I was once a superintendent of at 47 in Baltimore. 
And it was just a place to crash. It was just like a room in the attic. It was a secret. But like, I think people were impressed when they heard, you got a squat? Damn, you got a squat? You know. And I suppose there was no real squat. There was the not, not much. Mm-hmm. But I met this one dude who used to come to some of the shows at Abe's and he was like, see that house over there? He's like, I'm going to take that house. And I was like, let me go over and see it with you, you know, because he'd already squatted and I went over and I was like, oh my God, I, I am so like intimidated by this because it was like literally like three and a half feet of crap and it was almost like an archaeological dig. Okay, three years ago there was a Hare Krishna here <laughs> and two years ago there was a drag queen and before that, you know, like it's just layers and layers of Be careful, be careful when you get the needle zone. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, I was just like, there's no way. There's And I said, no, I'm not going to submit myself to this amount of work. But then I ended up going on a crazy druve where I was walking all over the city. And it was the summertime, and my friends were like, they saw me walking around the city, and they're like, where are you going? It's like, I'm just going on a druve. I'm not sure where I'm going, but I'm just like, you know, I think I'm going to walk to the shore. And they're like, you're crazy. You can't walk to the shore. Like, we're going to see Five Story Fall at... um." At Bacchanal, you know, Five Story Fall was a pretty cool Philly band. And um, and I was like, I'm going to walk to the fucking shore. So I walked to the the, the Ben Franklin Bridge. And I, I like it when the sun was setting. Meanwhile, I had walked randomly, like, at least 10 miles around the city. <laughs> and then I'm walking through Camden at night. That's a good idea. I was so fucking scared. I only saw one person. And they looked as scared of me as I looked of them. I mean, and I ended up, like, walking all the way to running mid-New Jersey. Jeez. I walked, like, over 39 miles to the point where I was hallucinating. And there was no point. And I was freezing. Like... I was freezing. I was wearing shorts and a t-shirt, and I was freezing. And I'm like, You're I found some dry-cleaning plastic, and I'm, like, wrapping it around myself to keep warm, which was a big mistake. Hypothermia sets in, you know, like, you're sweating. And I'm like, fuck. And I just, like, I, I crawled like there were these big... Um, big like lights for like you know these giant i don't know casinos or something you know these big uh billboards and i'm i'm staying warm near the lights and i fell asleep in the morning like the sun was up i had like a raging headache and i was like what the fuck was i thinking so i just stuck out my thumb and i got a ride within 10 minutes and got to the shore i was fine but you know when i got back to philly i stayed with my family there were they were in Avalon or something. I was filthy. Then I went to a great show with DOA and the Dicks and the Dead Milkman. Jesus, that's a way to end yeah, that experience. Yeah, it was great. But when I got back to Philly, I was like, I'm taking that fucking house. Like, it was weird. I had to extend my body past my fear somehow. Like, I really had to go through some kind of crazy, like, right. ritual of, like, physical whatever, you know. And I ended up taking that house. And I lived there for a while, and it was amazing. I stopped doing shows, but I was, like, very active in the soup kitchen. What ended up happening was really interesting. Around Halloween time, I, like, my house kind of filled up. I met some people in the soup kitchen, including a mother and son who needed shelter, a Vietnam veteran who came in, who gave us shelter. We met this one guy who ran pirate radio stations on 52nd Street, he was so smart. He came over and looked at our electric. He's like, I could have this whole house connected in no time. He set up all our electricity. Meanwhile, we like before that, we just had like this really rudimentary connection to like one, you know, alley lamp that mm-hmm. we hooked up ourselves right. for like a radio and a lamp. That was it. But now we had like full electric for the whole house. And around that time, I was working a lot in the soup kitchen. The soup kitchen extended to like two other churches. So it was three nights a week and we're about to get the fourth night, which was amazing. And um, 
they offered me a job as sexton of St. Mary's Church, which is a full-time job with a salary. What does the sexton do? It's it sounds like, a, yeah, yeah. Um, I looked it up in the dictionary when I first found it, and it said gravedigger bell ringer. Oh, and neither of these, neither of these uh, roles were in my job description. It's unfortunate. It's like a sanctified janitor, essentially. Uh, okay. I was the person who cleaned up the job, cleaned up the place, and had to clean, work, you know, all over the place, cleaning the church, the parish hall, the nursery school, everywhere I had to clean. Well, anyway, around that time in my life, I was really living a monk-like life. I was exploring this idea, concept of what I call self-reduction, which is money is not essential in life. Food and shelter are essential. You need to eat, you need a place to live. So I was exploring a lifestyle that I could work in the soup kitchens and feed myself and work on feeding others. I have an abandoned house that I took over, I'm fixing up, you know, people would give me money to like buy, fix up windows and this and that, you know. I basically believed money, the dominance of money in life is, is a problem for a lot of people. It was a big problem for me at the time. But anyway, I was offered this full-time job. As I'm about to go into my job interview with the vestry of the church, which is 12 people and the pastor, a homeless Vietnam veteran walked up to me. He was a squatter who lost all of his possessions near Drexel when they bulldozed the house he lived in with all his writings, all his possessions inside the house. Mm -hmm. Very sad character. And um, he said to me as I went in for my job interview, if you get this job, are you going to pay government taxes? I said, no, I'm not going to pay government taxes. So I went into this little interview with a little bug up my butt. And like they asked me about myself and I said, I'm a squatter. I work in the soup kitchens. You know, I'm really interested in working for food and shelter. Money doesn't matter to me very much, blah, blah, blah. But then I made the announcement, if I get this job, I want you to know I'm not going to pay government taxes. And then this person spoke up and said, that's illegal. You have to pay government taxes. It's the law. But then the number two person, who was a professor at Penn, the rector's warden, he said, well, I could think of a way around this. What we can do is on paper, we can pay Tim the maximum allowed non-taxable salary, which at that time was minimum wage for 19 hours a week. And I still remember my salary. It was $56.83 a week, every week. Oof. Well, yeah. two weeks after I got this job, and I agree, and they said the rest of the money will go into the Hospitality Coalition, which is which is the meal program. Okay, okay. And I was like, I think that's a wonderful idea. I could definitely survive on $56.83 a week. I'm not paying rent. Two weeks later, my house was burned to the ground by skinheads. Uh, and did they, did they burn your house intentionally? Like, did Well, I think they were jealous who were squatting, but in reality, I... I know that someone in the house owed them $10 for a bag of weed, but... That was surely... Yeah, yeah. That was surely but bad. ultimately, I honestly believe that all the people in the house, their karma collectively made something, allowed something like this to happen. And I'm not... I'm actually glad it happened in a sense. I mean, it was dangerous and scary. Luckily, no one was hurt or died. But for me, it was the kick in the ass I needed because before that, I was Tim who was nice to the homeless person, you know, who would come in. Mm -hmm. But then I was Tim who was actually the homeless, homeless person, yeah. who had to live where he worked and had to bathe in the kitchen sink and pour hot water over his head when he wanted to rinse off, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, it was an illuminating time for me because, uh, you know, I would, I would meet people who would be shunned from the soup kitchen because they smelt really bad or because they were extremely psychotic but they knew that they had to have shoes or a cup of coffee or they would die, you know. And mm -hmm. So they would be the people who would be ringing the bell late at night sometimes. 
and saying, can you help me? And I would, how could I say no? You know, Mm -hmm. how could I say no? It was an interesting time for me. I lived there for like a year and a half. And eventually, you know, I met some people who worked for different agencies in Philly. One was the Bethesda Project. And I think I started working for them in like 87, 88. They were homeless. Yeah, they still exist. Bethesda Project still exists. And Project Home started in 89. And I was one of the founding members of Project Home. I worked for them for 20 years. Yeah, Yeah, so it was a a powerful time. You know, it was... And there were shows at St. Mary's. It was crazy, you know, because... But, I mean, were those shows happening because of your involvement? Um, a little bit. I was through with the shows then, but I think, you know, there was already this active folk music scene there called the Cherry Tree, and those people hated me and my friends. <laughs> we called them the folk Nazis because they would just, you know... They would just shun us and like Tim's living in the church, you know, like, and I would have friends over all the time. It was just so annoying. I mean, I think most of my friends who lived in the house lived there for free for like at least a month or two, Mm -hmm. you know, until, and then like it got crazy because like that winter we built shanties on Penn's campus and lived outside for six weeks. What year is this? This is a winter of 86. Okay. Yeah. We built shanties on Penn's campus and actually lived outside must have loved for that. six weeks. It was crazy. I was on television. I mean, I, you know, we borrowed a television to plug it in. I was like, I'm going to call my folks. I'm going to be on Action News tonight. And I, I'm I sure didn't get through. Happy to see I was so glad I didn't reach them because I saw myself on TV and I was like, oh my God, I look like a homeless person. I really like, I was out there. I was, I was out there living for six weeks in this field. And other homeless people built shanties, too. We had, like, five or six shanties out there. And it was, it was amazing. I mean, we didn't get much from Penn, you know. They gave us a free a bus, a school bus. And we had a free lunch program for, like, a year and a half. At 40th and Sansom, you know. But once the parking um, permit expired, the, the bus got towed away. I lived on that bus for a while, too. <laughs> so so yeah. through, through, through this, so it's your parents, yeah. uh, you know, uh, working class, oh, yeah. Irish, Catholic, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. What do they think their son is up to? I mean, surely this is completely yeah. I think I, yeah. I think they're confused. You know, I mean, they were definitely oh, confused about a lot of things. Or... I mean, they were definitely you know when I would come home sometimes I would sneak into their house and raid stuff and my mother started n- nailing the basement window shut so I couldn't sneak in. <laughs> it was only a trolley right away. Sometimes I'd like put a bingo token in the in the the trolley praying that the, you know. They wouldn't kick me off, and, you know, I'd walk sometimes, mm-hmm. but uh, it was nice, you know, having their support. They eventually moved to Lansdowne and, you know, climbing the up, up to uh, middle class. They're desperately afraid of Darby once it started getting, getting integrated a little bit, and, mm-hmm. yeah, both my parents are gone, and, you know, my siblings are spread all over Pennsylvania. So Philadelphia, uh, say early mid 80s was there uh was there a drug problem in the sort of punk or activist community was there a lot of there was uh, definitely for some people that were smack dabbling and stuff i mean i definitely you know spent a lot of time in the 80s smoking pot and tripping i mean it was just you know a rite of passage for me did you feel feel that the, the the tripping benefited you in you know when i first tripped i thought i will never be the same after this and you know i'm the same it was you don't think it had a that i think it was i I think it was definitely powerful i don't think it's um essential i don't think it's essential i think you know i've gotten so much as much from meditation you know as i have from any lsd trip and 
or from looking at art or listening to intense music, you know, it's powerful. It's just, you know, compression of time and reality and, mm-hmm. you know, so suddenly it's uh, all of a sudden things have this amazing intensity. I'm sure it was therapeutic for me in a sense, but it was also really traumatic, you know. I After one horrific trip, I decided not to trip anymore. Right. Yeah. But um, I want to talk about St. Mary's a little bit, though, because yeah, yeah. there were some crazy shows there. And I wasn't doing shows, but, like, you know, I there were some people approaching me and like, we want to do these, we got a bigger band coming and, you know, Antietam's coming through and no trend is coming through. And like, you know, we can get ruined to open up for them or the dead milkman or whatever. I was like, that's cool. You know, as long as you help me clean up and it went okay. But I, I remember one of the shows, like it wasn't on a Friday night. It was on a Saturday night and it was disaster because what was the problem? Problem was like, Beers everywhere, beer smell everywhere, graffiti, like spray paint red on the parish hall. And it was just like, oh no, and like Sunday is church day. It was just a nightmare. How am I going to get this fucking beer smell out of here? And how am I going to like get rid of this spray paint on the wall? Was Was that doable? Did you manage I I did. I mean, it was definitely a problem. It was definitely air freshener. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It was definitely a problem. And then we had, like, a big show at the Christian Association, because they had, like, a big, a fancy stage there and um, at 36th and, and uh, Locust on Locust Walk. That building doesn't, I mean, it's existing, but it's not what it is now. It's not the Christian Association. Oh, my God, like, a ton of people came, but uh, a lot of people were smoking pot outside and drinking and... I just caught holy hell, you know, like yeah, I, would I mean, so. <laughs> the pastor of the church just came over to the school bus at the lunch program was ripping me another one, but uh, you know, St. Mary's had like a long tradition. I I don't know if you've heard of Gino's Empty Foxhole. No, no. But uh, it's it was is, a, is jazz, a, a legendary jazz club in the basement of St. Mary's yeah. where Mingus played, Coltrane played. And, so where's um, St. Mary's is, is where? 40th and Locust, okay. pretty much, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like um, a little island on Penn's campus. It's it's known as St. Mary's Hamilton Village. 40th Street used to be called Hamilton Street. And that little neighborhood was called Hamilton Village. And I believe the Woodlands was Hamilton Manor. Okay. And mm-hmm. it led up to, you know, 40th Street being Hamilton Street, led right up to the manor, which is this huge cemetery with the manor house in it. So how long were the the punk shows, the hardcore shows, going on at St. Mary's? Very briefly, yeah, I would say there were only a handful of shows there, like three or four. I remember Antietam played upstairs. I remember No Trent played in the basement, and for some reason we had, like, boxes of, like, chocolate chip cookies, and um, I think, like, we put them out, but, like, for some reason the band just started throwing them at the crowd. (laughs) It was just... Oh, this is going to be fun to clean up. Yeah, you know? no one thinks of that. Yeah. You're kind of stuck with it. Yeah, and I just remember um, Ruin playing down there, and it being really packed and dramatic, because, you know, it was a nice big stage in the basement. There was a stage in the basement, and there was the upstairs room, and they were both great, great spaces. Yeah. So what were some of the, the Philly bands of the time that you were seeing that you thought were particularly uh, enjoyable? I really liked Scram a lot. I loved Electric Love Muffin. Um, Ruin was good. Yeah, I was told that you discovered Scram. Yeah, I don't even remember how that is the case. I might have seen them somewhere else, maybe. I can't remember the circumstances, but I remember stopping them. Maybe it was at CEC. 
And I think I actually saw them on a, at a gig, and I just stopped them and said, "You guys were really good." Around what year is this? Oh, this is probably this is probably eighty-five. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was at CEC, and I just stopped them, and it might have been another show. We did shows at, at CEC too. You see, it's CEC. CEC it was the Community Education Center at Thirty Fifth and Lancaster. Okay. Um, space still exists. Um, it's really kind of like a painted bride west now, you know. Okay. In fact, we did shows there, but there were other folks doing shows too. But there was a controversial stage dive that a kid got a broken neck, and then there was some kind of suit and a lot of problems, and mm -hmm. uh, so I think that cooled off the shows for a while. And uh, yeah, yeah, there were a bunch of shows there, and it was pretty much the same deal, like Rock Against Hunger. We did a lot of shows. We were doing shows like every couple of weeks, you know, it was just pretty crazy. So it seems like you, you're kind of far more political or socially active. Like your interest in punk was maybe, mm, I mean, it's hard to, you kind of, you move away from this, right? The, ultimately, yeah. the, the musical part of it. Yeah, it yeah. seems like you kind of, you're focusing more on the politics. So, um, I mean, do you see like the music as, as a means of kind of, Achieving these these more like social goals of, of raising money or uh, you know how, how do you take how you take I think that's a good I mean it just seems like something positive you can do with the energy from punk to raise money for stuff or raise awareness at least about stuff at least it's not completely destructive and and uh, self indulgent and just getting fucked up you know which is a lot of punk you know when I first got into punk I really kind of liked. You know, I didn't like the Sex Pistols very much. The Clash seemed more, like, proactive somehow. Mm -hmm. And at least I was, like, a little sympathetic with their politics. Um, but... Do you feel that um, that the initial punk scene was maybe more self-destructive and nihilistic and that perhaps with hardcore coming along that there there was this positivity or this creativity yes. that maybe would have I think appealed that's to true. you more? Mm -hmm. There's always going to be people who come along with, you know something positive and you know chuck was the person in my life who basically said we should do this rock against hunger thing and you know just uh, a chance meeting like that you know and i got involved in it and really the thread that that created for me is just like awareness of hunger but also awareness of homelessness you know my career for like 20 years with project home is all part of that thread you know mm -hmm. i mean there's people who i met at saint mary's who i eventually became their social worker you know they would wander into my office <laughs> i was right. their caseworker and these were people who were ringing the doorbell late at night and i was like and they remembered you know mm -hmm. do you remember you used to come to saint mary's and i used to give you coffee and you know because some of these people were just in really shitty boarding homes in West Philly, you know, a lot of homeless people get placed in these boarding homes where they take 75% of your check and you get a bologna sandwich and some Campbell's soup and that's well, isn't it. That, is this sort of something, what, how Abe was running his operation for Abe States? Because Chuck kind of yeah. went into this and some of the well, people Well, Chuck mentioned. was, a, I mean, um, Abe was a landlord and he owned the building where the restaurant was and I eventually lived upstairs, which was quite a scene. Shared, shared a uh, <laughs> kitchen with a bunch of freaks and uh and this was abe's army yeah yeah do you want to maybe elaborate on a little yeah bit it was basically like... a lot of mental health consumers and junkies and you know it it was a tough crowd you know and they they would hang out all the time waiting for their little allowance or their cigarettes and abe was a sort of social worker you know he managed you know and 
and he well, managed a lot of people's money. Mm-hmm. Now, talking to Chuck, he he was sort of uncertain whether Abe was sort of on the level and, and doing these people a service, or yeah. if he was kind of a slumlord and maybe was not. Yeah. So, I mean, how how do you feel that, that he? I, I think he was um, definitely a slumlord. His buildings were dumpy as shit, but um, I don't think he abused people. No, I mean, I think his buildings could have been nicer, but it's not like these people, you know. I, I don't think he was. I think he was a really nice guy. Okay. You know, I think he had integrity. You know, I think, yeah. I never had a problem with him. I always thought he was decent. Yeah. So Chuck wanted me to, to ask you about uh, the kind of burgeoning uh, movement towards West Philadelphia that uh, I suppose, you know, these shows and, and the punks were, were perhaps a part of in that, um, you know, would, would cause folks to start coming into this neighborhood, yeah. which now, especially for people who don't necessarily know Philadelphia or Philadelphia neighborhoods, yeah, it's yeah. kind of a very vibrant, you know, mixed community with, with lots of like, you know, lefty, artsy types and all yeah, sorts yeah. Of, So if you maybe can explain a little bit about that. Uh, yeah, I guess, I mean, there are were shows here and people would come here and some people from the burbs would want to live here and move in and squat or start some kind of group house and it's just um yeah i mean i think i think west philly is peaked for like that kind of scene i mean there's definitely there's there's shows here and there's still stuff happening but it's I don't think it's nearly what it used to be. I think it's a shadow of its. Do you think that this is because the U Penn, the university, is kind of eating oh yeah? A lot of the I property? mean, it's definitely um, yeah. Gentrification has really, you know, there's there's no squats anymore for one thing. I mean, mm-hmm. I know of one squat around the corner from here, and it's it's pretty much a femme queer squat, and you know, they're into music, but it's all like you know, DJ music, and you know, not, it's not really. There's no scene like there used to be, um, but that could change. I mean, you never know. So you're part of the A Space. Uh, no, I'm not. Uh, oh, you're not. Okay, okay. I'm not a member of A Space, but I am there working more than anyone. I'm autonomous of both of the collectives that operate from there. Oh, there's two. Co- I don't really know. Well, the that. Books of Arts Collective, okay. which I used to be a member of, and the A Space Collective, which I used to be a member of. Okay, so, but... so those two collectives use use the space. Yes. Uh, what. Um... So what is your relationship with them, and why is it not more... Um, I just don't want to go to meetings. Or, yeah. I, I think the A-Space Collective is kind of like... Um, well, it's a actually, shadow of its former self. Yeah, let me bring you back to that, actually, because yeah. I mean, a lot of people who, who listen to this won't really yeah. know what that is. Yeah, yeah. Can, can you give sort of a... a yeah, A-Space is a collectively run space in the neighborhood that um, that is used by a lot of different um, people and... A couple different organizations. For one is Books Through Bars, which is a program that sends books to incarcerated folks. And I'm one of the founders of that group here in Philly. At least I'm one of the people who started it at A Space. It was started by New Society Publishers, uh, which ironically used to operate from the same space. But then they grew and moved to a big warehouse at 45th and Springfield. When did they start? The I don't know. It's a good question. I want to say the seventies. Okay. And they grew to a, spa- a a much a need for a bigger space, and they moved, but then they tanked. They basically said we cannot sustain ourselves with this. And one of the people, Todd Peterson, who was a member of the New Society Publishers Group, he um, 
basically made his, um, he basically decided that books that aren't needed and that are hurt, uh, torn covers or whatever hurt in the process of uh, printing, I'm going to send them to prisoners. And they would have an occasional letter and eventually he started sending them out so more letters started coming. And then he started pulling other books from friends. Uh, you got any Dostoevsky? You got any this? And he started a small library and he was responsible for sending these out and he would you know, do a little fundraising to keep it going. But when New Society Publishing publishers folded in Philadelphia, they sold their holdings uh, to the British Columbia sister uh, publishing house, which still exists. Um, Is it still called New Society? Yes, New Society, Society Publishers. Mm -hmm. Publishing books on nonviolent social change, feminism, ecology, anti-racist work, all kinds of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, he uh, basically, someone said, well, who's going to do the Books Through Bars program that he started? And myself and Scott Lamson and um, Charles Chiross, who's an active Philadelphia Green, the three of us started at A-Space. A-Space was started by some people from the Wooden Shoe Collective who happened to live in West Philly. Some of them were squatters. And, and the A is for anarchy, obviously. Yes. So these, and it's also A-Space. Oh, okay. It is just A-Space, which so was appealing not, so to me. it's not expressly anarchy, then? It is, no, well, it has a symbol, but it's yeah. also A-Space. You know, it's just a space for people in the community to use. And, you know, the only rules are you can't preach racism or hate or homophobia or any of these things and or electoral politics technically that was one of the things but you know the space has evolved uh some of the people had coffee connections in philly so we're like we're gonna have a little we're gonna have a little coffee shop you know anarchist coffee shop in west philly and they even got a friggin espresso machine and all this stuff you know and but no one really wanted to do the work to like you know get a business license and do that we'll just have this little club kind of thing and oh nice surely love yeah it. yeah and like you know a few people would do events and it was like usually open events and we'll just plug in the bunomatic and have a donation thing and have coffee and it worked for a while and like there was a video night we had this big ass tv and they hook up the vcr and crank some weirdo movie and when, when did they say start 92 i want to say uh -huh. yeah and um and books and bars happen there like every other week and the calendar was like handmade and um, always had funny illustrations on it and you know it's evolved a lot since then but I kind of miss those days you know um, and I drifted in and out of the collective sometimes I'd be in the collective I was working full-time as a social worker so it was hard for me to do stuff and it was the same with books to bars I was just like you know and then I got sick of doing social work and I, I became the night manager for book trader uh, when it was at Fifth and South, mm -hmm. and that's when I really plugged into books through bars because I was just like seeing all these books that they were getting rid of because they maybe had a little bit of underlining or mm -hmm. this or that, and I was just like, this is so great for books through bars. And then I started an account for books through bars, traded to get the books we really needed, got very involved with Wooden Shoes Basement because they were storing a lot of books for books through bars too. So it was a good time, and uh, eventually started squatting, um, squatted on the block across from a space. That was before A-Space started, though. That was, like, 1990. I squatted. Have you consistently squatted? or have you No, no. Like, I've drifted here and there to, between squatting and renting. And, uh, you know, right now I'm just working, like, 12 hours a week for money. and my, But my rent is super cheap. It's like I'm just working. My rent's, like, $209 a month. So so what, what sort of work do you do now? I'm a street cleaner right now. I work with a guy who has cerebral palsy. And um, he can walk, but only with something to hold him up. And his sister is a former landlord of mine. 
and she went through a hell of a time. Both her parents died. She had breast cancer. Her husband dumped her. Um, he died of cancer. <laughs> and then um, her brother, who has cerebral palsy, when her mother died, she decided she was going to take her brother in. Her brother was not going into a hospital. She was going to have her house entirely renovated, completely renovated, with all these special railings to hold him up so he could walk around. And he's obsessed with cleaning the streets. So she bought like an industrial tilt truck. And we go out with grabbers and we clean the gutters. Oh, so clean... you're not, it's not like you're working for the city of Philadelphia. No, it's like you're no. working for a guy who likes it. Like yeah, the street. yeah. Uh, and then who, he pays? She pays. She, she pays. Yeah, she inherited some money when her folks passed away. And she has a little fund. And she employs me and several of the people in the neighborhood on a part-time basis. And it's like, you know, 12 bucks under the table. 12 bucks an hour under the table. And, you know, it's enough for me to get by and I have like a little trashy booty cottage industry and so you could explain what that is. yeah it's treasures from the trash um, <laughs> I do a lot of fundraising for books to bars selling books that are not essential for the program on Amazon and I've gotten really good at it the past couple of years I really despise Amazon as a corporation but um, we basically can raise thousands of dollars for the program you know assessing rare books or textbooks or books that come in that have discs that have value and I basically started that for Bookstubars and it's been pretty invaluable fundraising source. So the concession is that I get the novelty books that aren't useful for the program and aren't even trade worthy actually, but um, you know, hardcover books or antique books, things like that, mm -hmm. that I can sell for a buck on the sidewalk. And I also sell DVDs and VHS tapes and junk and yeah, uh, yeah and I have a little storage space next to A space. So. so of all the people that I've talked to, you seem to live the life that clearly the most outside of society probably more than anybody <laughs> anybody that i know oh i'm so I'm, happy to hear that yeah i mean that, <laughs> by by far. i'm an economic exile essentially <laughs> yeah but, but a willful you know so yeah exactly. so it, it, i mean so to me it's, it's very alien uh yep. so in in living this far out of society by by choice and yep. through your entire adult life um does uh do you feel feel a fear you know uh, of um do you always feel like you're on the precipice of of falling or is it because you've always kind of lived on kind of like a lower level that that you don't have to fear that you're going to lose everything like i mean i could lose anything everything at any time you know walking down the street i could lose my life i just rather you know i'd rather work meaningful i'd rather do meaningful things with my life and try to figure out the balance of self-actualization as well as you know community community is really important to me you know, my physical community is is really important to me. My neighborhood is very important to me. So it's a blessing to be able to contribute in such a direct way. Excuse me for a second. Hey, Hugh, can I call you back? I'm going to call you back. I'm, yeah, bye-bye. Is a reading at A-Space tonight? So. Uh, okay. How do you have a cell phone? How do you pay for that? Yeah, I'm on a family plan. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and someone family is the entire so, world, man. Someone adopted me. <laughs> oh, that's good. Yeah. And it's a bartering relationship, actually. I, I have four hours of uh, house cleaning I have to do for this person. It's very loose. Yeah. It's yeah. easy going. Yeah. Fewer bills, you know. Yeah, this seems to be kind of, uh, I mean, to me, like the most extreme sort of thread of punk. I mean, there's, there's an ethos, a DIY ethos. Um, and there's a desire to be removed from society um, that, that tends to come part and parcel with, at least people say that. They don't necessarily uh -huh. live that. So it's, it's sort of very interesting and very impressive to me that you take this part of punk, even though you 
don't necessarily really have any great interest in punk in yeah. 2013, but you kind of really live that lifestyle. Yeah. Yeah. So which is. But yeah, I just kind of get fed up for working working with nonprofits and just like I just noticed that my options became fewer and fewer. I didn't want to be an administrator anymore. I noticed that the program I worked in, um, they were downsizing within the program without any input from the staff. It was really frustrating. Administrative assistant fired, not replaced. Weekend supervisor fired, not replaced. And I was like, and then they went for a third full-time position. I was like, this is a pattern. I, I said, this is so unfair. It's not in keeping with the mission statement of this organization. I love Project Home. It actually stayed with them for like another couple of years, even after writing this really strong letter that I felt like it was on fire when I gave it to them, you know, because I, I just, I can't, I couldn't believe that they were, administrators were making these decisions, um, bean counting and just cutting staff away from jobs and just, and, you know, just, I don't know. Democracy in the workplace is really important to me. And, uh, you know, I don't know, even the best things are completely distorted and, uh, and and ruined by capitalism you know and i don't know where i'm going but i'm interested in you know collective living as much as possible and economic alternatives as much as possible you know local currencies are very appealing to me mm -hmm. that sort of thing and yeah you seem to be a rather cheerful guy so you think you've kind of retained your sense of happiness through yeah. you know all of this actually it's good to hear that i'm actually pretty depressed a lot of the time but i do a lot of meditating and that helps i do vipassana meditation which is simply sitting for like an hour at a time and dealing with what's going on in your body and mind and it's a buddhist style practice but it's non-sectarian and um it was offered to me for free and it's offered in prisons around the world it's offered in centers around the world and it's always free but it's physically and mentally very challenging mm -hmm. so yeah very good well uh it's been absolutely fantastic talking good. to you uh thank you very much yeah thank you uh, let me over oh, there uh, okay.